Job to our choir. Well, good morning again. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3 this morning for our sermon. And so I want to invite you to open your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, then in front of you, in the, in the pew that is in front of you, there's a rack on the back of that. And there should be a blue hardcover copy of a Bible that we would encourage you to take that out and follow along. In the front of that, of course, you'll find a table of contents where you can find the book of Galatians. We'll also have the scripture on the screen this morning, so you'll be able to follow along that way as we are studying in the book of Galatians, working our way through the, the book of Galatians. And you can tell by what's in front of me here on the, the table that this morning we will end our sermon time and this time of celebration and worship together by observing the Lord's Supper together. And so excited to study this text in Galatians chapter 3 together this morning and also to be able to end together with the Lord's Supper as we uh, wrap up the, the sermon and, and we see, as, as we see, rather that, that what we study in Galatians 3 verses 15 through 22 is going to lead us perfectly into that moment where we where we meet together with God and, and, and corporately together, reminded of his sacrifice for us and the promise of life that we have through Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Okay, so I want to start this morning, though, before we get into the text, by I actually want to kind of open by uh, telling a little bit of a story because I want, I want to get you thinking about something. When I was growing up, okay, I'm a product of the 1970s. I was born in 1978, and when I was growing up in the late 1970s, early 1980s, our family had this maroon 1973 Pontiac Grand Prix. That was the car that my mother drove. And uh, as kids, that's what, that's what she hauled us around in. You know, compared to what we drive today and the kind of family vehicles and things that we have today, uh, they didn't have anything on this, on this Pontiac Grand Prix. It had two doors and the, you know, the, the bucket seats in the front that would fold down and you could crawl in the back on the red vinyl seats there in you know, the back seat of, of this car. And of course, in those days, uh, oftentimes we didn't have a seat belt on in the back seat, right? I mean, the, it was obviously the world worked a lot differently than it does today. You know, nowadays there are a lot more restrictions, and, and that's a good thing because it's all about keeping our children safe and, you know, and, and kids are supposed to be in a, a car seat or a booster seat until they're like up to 80 pounds nowadays and things. And in and, and my day growing up, you know, mom's arm was the thing that was supposed to stop you from going through the windshield if she had to stop short or something. And uh, it was a different world back then. But I remember vividly uh, in, in those days, I remember as a young boy that we would get in arguments, my brothers and I, I'm, I'm the middle of three three boys. And so my older brother, about two and a half years older than I am. My younger brother, about two and a half years younger than I am. So I'm right in the middle of the three of us. And I remember a lot of arguments about who was going to have to sit in the middle of the back seat. Because in the middle of the back seat of mom's Pontiac Grand Prix, there was sort of a hump. And you didn't really get a seat as much as you got a bump, you know, a speed bump to ride around on uh, in the back seat of that car. And so all the time we would get in the car and, and, and there would be arguments. And it just seemed like that because I was the middle child, somehow naturally it fell to me that I was the one that ended up riding in the middle on this vinyl speed bump 
uh, in the back seat of, of mom's car. It's like if, if she would hit a, a pothole or a bump of some kind, you, you wouldn't just ride with it. You'd kind of bounce up and, you know, maybe hit your head on the ceiling, that sort of thing. I mean, it was like maybe a trampoline is another good way to describe that middle seat, you know, that, that you were wedged in on. And, and so I remember lots of these arguments about who was going to be stuck in the middle. And then our lives really changed because in 1985, okay, in 1985, my parents purchased a new car. They bought a Chevrolet Celebrity Wagon. And if you remember a 1985 Chevrolet Celebrity Wagon, I can tell by the look on your faces what you're thinking. And it's okay to be jealous. Uh, It it is. Listen, there was nothing at all celebrity about the Chevy Celebrity Wagon. I don't know where they got that name. It was the worst marketing ploy in in the history of man. Uh, Whoever was was naming cars, better yet, whoever was making cars in the mid-1980s was on point, you know, because uh, that thing was, uh, was great. And in this station wagon, life changed a lot because now we had our own set of doors, right? You know, no longer did we have to wait for someone to swing wide the doors and flip down the seat to crawl in. Now we had our own set of doors to get in the back seat. And not only that, the back seat had a cloth bench seat instead of the vinyl that would be scorching hot in the summer. Now we had a cloth seat to sit on. And there was actually a little more space in the middle of the back seat, but not enough that it stopped us from still constantly getting into fights about who was going to have to sit in the middle. And I remember that in that car, there was a fold down or flip up, whichever way you want to think of it, back seat that faced the rear direction right so the hatch would open in the back and then you could flip the seat up and if you sat in the back you had to sit and face (laughs) this was hilarious you would face people who were driving behind you right so you pull up to a light and there you are that you're sitting in the back bench seat and you're just staring and waving and you know And for whatever reason, we never sat in that seat. I don't know why it was, but we still just sat in the middle seat, and we would get in fights about who had to sit in the middle of the middle seat, right? And and so for me, as a middle child who always got stuck in the middle seat, life was always about middle. In many ways, my entire youth, you know, all of my formative years were spent in the middle of a lot of things. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. We've been talking about the purpose of the law and the role that the law plays in grace and how Jesus... In how he fits in the middle of this story that God has been telling of what God has been doing and what's been unfolding since the beginning of human history. And what we're going to find this morning is this, is that Jesus stands at the very center of all of human history. That he stands at the very center of the story of Scripture, the story of the Bible. He stands at the very center of God's work. That it's all about Jesus. And everything that happened before Jesus was pointing the way toward him. And everything that's happened since him is pointing back at the work that he did for us, that Jesus is in the middle, and as a middle child who got stuck in the middle seat a lot, I can identify with being in the middle of things, but in a, in a really profound way as we study this passage this morning, and, and Paul is writing about the purpose of the law and the promise that was made, I want us to see how Jesus is at the heart of everything, which is why we've called this series The Heart of the Gospel. 
That just sounds better than the middle of the gospel, right? But really, by calling it the heart of the gospel, what we're hoping to see as we study through Galatians is that at the very center of what it means to have faith in Christ, at the very heart of the gospel, is this idea that Jesus gave himself for us and that he mediates this new covenant by his blood that we're even going to see this morning in this passage. And so I I want us to read together, starting in verse 15 of Galatians chapter 3. And as I do this, take note of how many times these two particular words get used in this passage. The word promise and the word law. Because in this passage, we're going to find several times the use of these words promise and law. Seven times, by my count, that the word promise is used in verses 15 to 22. And six times that the word law is used. It's the, it's the central theme of this text. And so Paul writes, to give a human example, brothers. And he's giving a human example of what we studied last week. In other words, he's, he's continuing to talk about the purpose of the law. We saw last week that... that The law places everyone who sins under a curse, but that Jesus broke the curse by becoming the curse for us. That he gave himself for us, becoming what we could not, so that we might have the curse lifted from us. And now he wants to give a human example of how this all works. And so he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So what he's saying is that even with our promises, even with our covenants that we make as humans, once we have a binding deal, like once we've inked the deal, right, we've signed our names, you can't change it. We understand the idea that once a promise is made, once a guarantee is set, that that's it. It's a done deal. That's the way that we would say it. And he's saying that this is, we understand this. No one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So the point is that God made a promise to Abraham, and nothing changed that promise. Later, under Moses, God gave the law. Later, he gave the people a a, a set of rules and a way that they ought to live and an instruction for how they ought to follow him and be faithful to him. And we've seen that the purpose of the law was to point out our need for something greater. But the point that he's wanting to make is that just because the law came in the picture, it did not do away with the promise. Remember, there's only one way of salvation, and that's through faith, as it has been from the beginning, right? And so he says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, so after the promise made to Abraham, then years later the law came. He says, the law does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise Void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So, yes, God gave the law to instruct us. Yes, God gave the law to show us how we ought to live. Yes, God gave the law ultimately to reveal our sin and our need for a Savior, but it was never intended that we would find salvation through following the law. That has always come through the promise, a guarantee to those who have faith. In verse 19, he writes, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. 
Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law contrary? Is it then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law has been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul has been arguing throughout his letter to the Galatians that the way that we are justified before God, the way that we receive salvation, the way that we are cleansed from our sin is through faith in God's promise. It has never been through keeping the law. Even in the Old Testament, people were not justified before God. They were not forgiven of their sins because they lived good moral lives. They were forgiven before God of their sin because of their faith in Him. In faith of a promise of what was to come. And so the first thing that I have in our notes this morning, for we're going to talk about this promise. And, and the first thing I want us to see is a future promise. That in this passage, Paul writes about a future promise that was made to Abraham and a future promise that was delivered so that people might, even in that time, even in the Old Testament, might find salvation, a way of salvation through faith in God. Have you ever wondered to yourself, how were people in the Old Testament saved? That's a question that I get asked a lot, actually. Uh, people are studying the Scripture, and they're, and they're trying to figure out how, how all of this works together. And we understand, of course, that it's, it's really one story. The Bible is telling one story, not 66 different stories because there are 66 books. But it's one story that's being written to tell us, to reveal to us God's purpose and His plan for us. That God made a way of salvation so that He might receive glory through saving us, redeeming us from the curse of sin. Oftentimes I get asked, well, in the Old Testament, how, how were people saved if Jesus hadn't come yet? And the answer that, that I point to, and the answer that I believe that the Scripture itself teaches us, is that salvation came in the Old Testament through faith in Jesus Christ. And now it was not faith looking back at the work of Christ, rather it was faith in the promise that was made. And this promise, of course, is delivered to Abraham. We see that in Galatians. We've seen even that God made a covenant promise with Abraham. Even in Genesis chapter 3, we find that when God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, that he, he gave them a picture of what was to come and, and even told Eve that there would be a day when of her seed there would be one who would conquer the enemy. And, and so from the very beginning, we see these foretellings, these foreshadowings of the work of Jesus. And so even at that time, people came to salvation through believing in God's promise, that if they placed their faith in Him, if they walked in the way that He had called them to walk, that if they lived for Him, that God, in His, in his grace and His mercy, would save them according to His promise that He made to them. And so salvation rests on God's promise and not man's works. And that's always the way that it worked. The covenant with Abraham uh, was established in this way. That the, the, Covenant with us today, the new covenant that we have with Jesus, still works this way, that it's by faith that we are saved. But even still today, there's an element of future promise in our salvation. Because although we understand that we come to, 
faith by trusting in Jesus Christ, by asking him to be savior of our life, by confessing our sins, by casting ourselves on his grace and his mercy and trusting in his work on the cross, none of us, no one within the sound of my voice has yet fully realized that promise. We are waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. And whether that comes when we pass from this life into eternity or whether it comes because Jesus would return and take us to be with him, the reality is that there's coming a day, a future, when this promise will be fulfilled in our lives. But until then, we live with a future promise, even as they did in the Old Testament. And the reason why this promise works, we see in verses 15 through 18, the reason why this promise works is because it is impossible for God not to keep his promise. The reason that the promise works is because God is absolutely faithful to the promise that he made. And so when you study the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis, and you study the covenant that God established with Abraham, what you find in the, in the establishing of this covenant is a picture of God's faithfulness. That even as God ratified, to use Paul's word here in Galatians, even as God ratified this covenant with Abraham, it was done in such a way that none of it rested on Abraham or his works, that everything rested on God to be faithful, to, to provide according to his word. And so God's call, God call, caused Abraham to fall into a great sleep. And while he was sleeping, there were these animals that were arranged and they were cut in half and then God a- appeared like a, a pillar of fire and and he went between the parts of the animals, which was actually a common practice in that day of how they would establish a covenant. It's as if by walking between the pieces of the animals, it was saying, if there are two sides to this deal, and if, we don't, if I don't keep my side, and if you don't keep your side, may this be our fate. It was a symbolic picture, a way that they would establish a covenant. And God was the one who walked through the pieces of the sacrifice alone, because God was the one who was going to keep the covenant with Abraham. God was the one who was going to be faithful. And so even from the beginning, the covenant that was established was established on a promise. Why? And because God is going to be faithful to his promise. And so the reason the promise works is because of the one who made the promise, right? God made the promise. God is faithful to the promise, and he will remain faithful. The reason why the law doesn't work, we see in verses 19 through 22, the, the law doesn't work. In, in other words, we cannot be saved by keeping the law because just as, just as we see that God cannot fail at keeping his promise, you and I cannot, we cannot pass the test of the law. So on the one hand, the promise works because God cannot be untrue to the promise and the law does not work because you and I cannot be faithful to the law. We cannot be true to keep the law we, we, because we can't be perfect. We might be good and we might do a lot of good things and we might be moral, but none of us could hope for perfection. Listen, even if you could hope to be perfect from this point forward, which we all know that that's not going to happen, right? But even if you could, for the sake of argument, you have your past to deal with. None of us can hope for perfection. So the law doesn't work because we can't keep the law. So God has established a promise, and the promise works because God will not fail. And God also established the law, and the law doesn't work because we can't keep the law. 
And so there was a need for something to work. And if God established a promise, and if God gave the law, and if the law couldn't provide for what the promise declared, then we need a way to receive God's promise. And what he says here is that this comes through Jesus. He he talks about there being an intermediary in verse 19 and 20. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That's speaking of Jesus, right? And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And so the idea is that God established the, the covenant through intermediaries by angels. God gave the law to Moses by the intermediary of the priests and the sacrifices. The people were to make, were, were to make payment to God for their sins, to, to try to seek his forgiveness. But none of that was ever intended to do it. Instead, it points the way for something Greater. In fact, John MacArthur writes that the law points to what only grace can produce. So the purpose of the law was never to save us. The purpose of the law was to show us that we need something or someone to save us. And so God gave us the law to show us our need for grace. And so we find a future promise. Not only that, we find a fulfilled promise promise in this text this morning. A fulfilled promise. Not only did God give a future promise, but then he fulfilled that promise. Have you ever had someone who made a promise to you and they didn't keep that promise? Have you ever been let down or disappointed or disenfranchised or even just heartbroken because someone made a promise to you and then they didn't make good on their promise? Or Have you maybe ever been guilty of making a promise to someone else that you didn't keep? The truth is we all do this, right? We make promises that we don't keep, not because we don't necessarily intend to keep them always, although we've probably all made promises we didn't intend to keep too, but it's not always because we don't intend to keep the promise, but oftentimes it's just because of, of our sinfulness and our weakness that we are unable to keep our promises. And so we make promises to others that we can't keep. People make promises to us that, that, that they can't keep. Our lives are full of broken promises. But what we find in the scripture is that God never, God never fails to come through on his promise. And so when God made a promise to Abraham, not only did he promise Abraham, but he had the means and the power to fulfill that promise that he made to Abraham. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and this is what he says to them. He's talking about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 1, 20, and he says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. And that's what Paul is telling us here. That a promise was made, and until such a time as God in his wisdom chose to fulfill that promise, he gave us the law as a means of showing that we needed something else, that we couldn't keep, we couldn't keep the, the law, we couldn't be faithful on our own. And then at just the right time, God fulfilled his promise through the work of Jesus. And so in your notes this morning, there are these three statements, right? Under that, that middle point, there are these three statements. Jesus' work on the cross is the central event of Scripture. In fact, the Old Testament points toward the cross. The Old Testament 
paves the way, if you will, for Jesus' work on the cross. The New Testament tells the story of Jesus' life and his ministry and his sacrifice, and then it points backward toward the work of Jesus on the cross. The cross stands at the very center of the story of Scripture. The very center of God's revelation to us is this truth that God loves us and he gave us Jesus to fulfill his promise that he made to us. Jesus is the center of Scripture. Not only that, Jesus' work on the cross is the central event of human history. When, when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, it, covered, it, it covers both sides of the cross, right? The old covenant goes to the cross. The new, the new covenant comes from the cross. It's the center work of human history for our lives. Everything leading up to that moment in history hung in the balance as Jesus hung on the cross. And in the same way, everything that's happened since then really hangs in that balance of what Jesus did by sacrificing himself on the cross. It's the central event of human history. But then finally, we see that his work on the cross, Jesus' work on the cross, must be the central event, the defining truth of our lives, of your life. Is your life centered around Jesus' fulfillment of God's promise? By faith, we are justified before God. By faith, we receive grace and forgiveness and are saved from our sin when we trust in Jesus, when we make the cross the center of our lives, the centerpiece of our life. It's a promise fulfilled. And so we see a future promise, we see a fulfilled promise, and then third, we see in this passage this morning an enduring promise. In this passage, it talks about in verse 21 and 22. So if God instituted the law and the purpose of the law was to point to something else, is he, does that mean that the law is contrary to God's promise? The, God, the law goes against God's promise? And he says, no, certainly not. The law was a part of God's plan. The law was a part of the promise because the law reveals our need for something greater. If righteousness could come through the law, then there would have been no need for Jesus. But, of course, righteousness could not come through keeping the law. And so everything was imprisoned under sin until the promise was fulfilled. And what does he say at the very end of verse 22? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is an enduring promise. How do I know it's an enduring promise? Because it's still just as true today as it was when Paul penned these words. It's just as true today as it was when Jesus hung on the cross. It's just as true today Hundreds and hundreds of years prior when God sought Abraham and established a covenant with him. The law pointed the way for our need for grace and that God, because he fulfilled that promise made through Jesus, now we, we can have an enduring promise. No one will find salvation apart from Jesus. No one finds salvation in any other way. If there was another way of salvation, then honestly, we wouldn't need Jesus, right? That we could earn it on our own. But none of us can hope to earn salvation on our own. We all need Jesus. And so we see that Jesus becomes this, this mediator of a new covenant. Just as the old covenant was instituted by intermediaries, 
the angels and the priests and the system that were put in place. Jesus, Hebrews teaches us in Hebrews chapter 10 particularly, that Jesus mediated a new and a perfect covenant through his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, which means that he was both priest and a king. Or as Romans chapter 3 tells us, he was both He was both just and the justifier of the one who come to faith. In other words, Jesus, by offering himself as the sacrifice, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, Jesus, who lifted the curse by becoming the curse for us, Jesus mediates a new covenant by his blood. And so when we come to faith in him, we experience the fulfillment of this promise. It's an enduring promise that will not fade. It will not go away. And so in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26 is Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples. And as he lifts the cup and he says to his disciples in verse 28, this is my blood, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, I, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is is telling us that he is the mediator of the new covenant. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, we see that there is, there is one way, there is one mediator of this covenant between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus mediates a new covenant with his blood. Jesus made a way for us by offering himself for us. And this morning, there's no better way for us to celebrate that sacrifice, no better way for us to remember what he did for us than to observe together this this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, to to celebrate with communion together. And the purpose of communion is it's, it's to be a picture and it's to be a reminder to us of what Jesus did for us. So in just a moment, we're gonna celebrate together this work of Jesus on the cross by taking the Lord's Supper together, by being reminded visually as we are, as we are wrapped up in this, in this celebration, in this ceremony, by being reminded that Jesus gave everything for us. He made a way for us by offering himself in our place. And so what I wanna ask you to do this morning as we prepare to move toward this, this time of celebration is I want to ask that you would that you would in your spirit in your heart that you would begin to look inward not that you're going to find the the truth or the answers or what you need inward because that only comes to the work of Jesus on the cross but rather that you would look inward and that you would examine your life and you would ask yourself this question does Jesus work on the cross stand as the central event of my life Is it the defining truth of who I am, the defining reality of my existence? Is it Jesus' work on the cross? His promise fulfilled, a future promise, an enduring promise. This morning as we celebrate together, I pray that we would be reminded that Jesus gave everything for us. So I want to ask if you would to even now, just prepare for this time of worship. Maybe you would close your Bible and, and, and maybe you would kind of, you know, we all kind of wrestle with our things. We, we, we have our, our notes and our things. And I want to ask that whatever you need to do so that your focus may be completely 
in this moment, engaged in this moment, that you would do that. If it's that you need to set things aside, maybe it's not. Maybe it's that you need to have that, that word open in your lap, staring at it, reading it, rem- reminding yourself of these truths of what was done for you. Whatever it is in this moment, I want to call you to that place where you would center your life even now around Jesus' work on the cross. And so I want to invite our deacon men forward this morning. And as they make their way forward and as we begin to prepare for this time of celebration together, let this be a moment of worship together this morning as we are reminded that Jesus fulfilled God's promise by offering himself for us.